Chapter Nine of The Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Nine An Attack by Kalkars. The tunnel in which I found myself, and along which Naila led me toward the city of Lathe, was remarkable in several particulars. It was largely of natural origin, seemingly consisting of a series of caves which may have been formed by bubbles in the cooling lava of the original molten flow, and which had later been connected by man to form a continuous subterranean corridor. The caves themselves were usually more or less spherical in shape, and the debris from the connecting passageways had been utilized to fill the bottoms of them to the level of the main floor of the passageway. The general trend of the tunnel was upward from the point at which we had entered it, and there was a constant draught of air rushing along it in the same direction in which we were moving, assuring me that it was undoubtedly well ventilated for its full length. The walls and ceiling were coated with a substance of which radium was evidently one of the ingredients, since even after we had lost sight of the entrance, the passageway was well illuminated. We had been moving along in silence for quite a little distance when I finally addressed Naila. It must seem good, I said, to travel again this familiar tunnel of your native city. I know how happy I should be were I thus approaching my own birthplace. I am glad to be returning to Lathe, she said, for many reasons. But for one, I am sorry. And as for this passageway, it is scarcely more familiar to me than to you, since I have traversed it but once before in my life, and that when I was a little girl and came here with my father in his court upon the occasion of his periodical inspection of the passageway, which is now practically never used. If you are not familiar with the tunnel, I asked, are you sure that there is no danger of our going astray at some fork or branch? There is but the one passageway, she replied, which leads from the crater to Lathe. And how long is the tunnel, I asked? Will we soon enter the city? No, she replied, it is a great distance from the crater to Lathe. We had covered some little distance at this time, possibly five or six miles, and she had scarcely ceased speaking when a turn in the passageway led us into a cave of larger proportions than any through which we had previously passed, and from the opposite side of which two passageways diverged. I thought there were no branches, I remarked. I do not understand it, she said. There is no branch from the tunnel of Lathe. Could it be possible that we are in the wrong tunnel, I asked, and that this does not lead to Lathe? A moment before I should have been sure that we were in the right tunnel, she replied, but now, Julian, I do not know, for never had I heard of any branch of our own tunnel. We had crossed the cave and were standing between the openings of the two divergent passageways. Which one shall we take, I asked, but again she shook her head. I do not know, she replied. Listen, I cautioned her, what was that? For I was sure that I had heard a sound issuing from one of the tunnels. We stood peering into an aperture which revealed about a hundred yards of the passageway before an abrupt turn hid the continuation of it from our view. We could hear what now resolved itself into the faint sound of voices approaching us along the corridor, and then quite suddenly the figure of a man 
appeared around the corner of the turn. Nyla leaped to one side out of sight, drawing me with her. A Kalkar, she whispered. Oh, Julian, if they find us, we are lost. If there is only one of them, I can take care of him, I said. There will be more than one, she replied. There will be many. Then let us return the way we came and make our way to the top of the crater's rim before they discover us. We can throw their hooked poles into the crater, including the one which we used to ascend from the mouth of the tunnel, thus effectually preventing any pursuit. We cannot cross this room again to the tunnel upon the opposite side without being apprehended, she replied. Our only hope is in hiding in this other tunnel until they have passed, and trusting to chance that we meet no one within it. Come, then, I said. I dislike the idea of flying like a scared rabbit, but neither would there be any great wisdom in facing armed men without a single weapon of defense. Even as we had whispered thus briefly together, we found the voices from the other tunnel had increased, and I thought that I noted a tone of excitement in them, though the speakers were still too far away for us to understand their words. We moved swiftly up the branch tunnel, Naila in the lead, and after passing the first turn, we both felt comparatively safe, for Naila was sure that the men who had interrupted our journey were a party of hunters on their way to the outer world by means of the crater through which we had entered the tunnel, and that they would not come up the branch in which we were hiding. Thus believing, we halted after we were safely out of sight and hearing of the large cave we had just left. That man was a Kalkar, said Nyla, which means that we are in the wrong tunnel, and that we must retrace our steps and continue our search for lathe upon the surface of the ground. Her voice sounded tired and listless, as though hope had suddenly deserted her brave heart. We were standing shoulder to shoulder in the narrow corridor, and I could not resist the impulse to place an arm about her and comfort her. Do not despair, Naila, I begged her. We are no worse off than we have been, and much better off than before we escaped the Vagas of Gavago. Then do you not recall that you mentioned one drawback to your return to Lathe? that you might be as well off here as there? What was the reason, Naila? Kota wants me in marriage, she replied. Kota is very powerful. He expects one day to be Jemadar of Lathe. This he cannot be while I live, unless he marries me. Do you wish to marry him, I asked? No, she said, not now. Before, she hesitated, before I left Lathe, I did not care so very much, but now I know that I cannot wed with Kota. And your father, I continued, what of him? Will he insist that you marry Kota? He cannot do otherwise, replied Naila, for Kota is very powerful. If my father refuses to permit me to marry him, Kota may overthrow him, and when my father is dead, should I still refuse to marry Kota, he may slay me also and then become Jemadar easily, for the blood of Jemadars flows in his veins. It appears to me, Naila, that you will be about as badly off at home as anywhere else in Vana. It is too bad that I cannot take you to my own earth, where you would be quite safe, and, I am sure, happy. I wish that you might, Julian, she replied simply. 
I was about to reply when she placed slim fingers upon my lips. Hush, Julian, she whispered. They are following us up this corridor. Come quickly. We must escape before they overtake us. And so saying, she turned and ran quickly along the corridor, which led neither of us knew whither. But we were soon to find out, for we had gone but a short distance when we came to the tunnel's end, in a large circular chamber, at one end of which was a rostrum, upon which were a massive, elaborately carved desk, and a chair of similar design. Below the rostrum were arranged other chairs in rows, with a broad aisle down the centre. The furniture, though of peculiar design and elaborately carved with strange figures of unearthly beasts and reptiles, was not for all of that markedly dissimilar to articles of the same purpose fabricated upon earth. The chairs had four legs, high backs, and broad arms, seeming to have been designed equally for durability, service, and comfort. I glanced quickly around the apartment as we first entered, only taking in the details later but I saw that there was no other opening than the one through which we had entered. We will have to wait here, Naila, I said. Perhaps, though, all will be well. The Kalkars may prove friendly. She shook her head negatively. No, she said, they will not be friendly. What will they do to us? I asked. They will make slaves of us, she replied, and we shall spend the balance of our lives working almost continuously until we drop with fatigue under the cruelest of taskmasters, for the Kalkars hate us of lathe, and will hesitate at nothing that will humiliate or injure us. She had scarcely ceased speaking when there appeared in the entrance of the cave the figure of a man about my own height, dressed in a tunic similar to Naila's, but evidently made of leather. He carried a knife slung in a scabbard depending from a shoulder belt, and in his right hand he grasped a slender lance. His eyes were close-set upon either side of a prominent hooked nose. They were watery, fishy, blue eyes, and the hair, growing profusely above his low forehead, was flaxen in color. His physique was admirable, except for a noticeable stoop. His feet were very large, and his gait awkward when he moved. Behind him I could see the heads and shoulders of others, they stood there, grinning at us for a moment, most malevolently, it seemed to me, and then they entered the cave, a full dozen of them. There were several types, with eyes and hair of different colors, the former ranging from blue to brown, the latter from light blonde to almost black. As they emerged from the mouth of the tunnel, they spread out and advanced slowly toward us. We were cornered like rats in a trap. How I longed for the feel of my automatic at my hip. I envied them their slender spears and their daggers. If I could have but these, I might have a chance at least to take Naila out of their clutches and save her from the hideous fate of slavery among the Kalkars, for I had guessed what such slavery would mean to her from the little that she had told me, and I had guessed too that she would rather die than submit to it. For my own part, life held little for me, I had long since definitely given up any hope of ever returning to my own world, or of finding the ship and being reunited with West and Jay and Norton. There came upon me at that moment, however, a sense of appreciation of the fact that, since we had left the village of the Novans, I had been far from unhappy, 
nor could I attribute this to aught else than the companionship of Naila, a realization that convinced me that I should be utterly miserable were she to be taken from me now. Was I to submit supinely, then, to capture and slavery for myself, and worse than death for Naila, with the assurance of consequent separation from her? No! I held up my hand as a signal for the advancing Kalkars to halt. Stop! I commanded. Before you advance farther, I wish to know your intentions toward us. We entered this tunnel, mistaking it for that which led to the city of my companion. Permit us to depart in peace, and all will be well. All will be well anyway, replied the leader of the Kalkars. You are a strange creature, such as I have never seen before in Bana. Of you we know nothing except that you are not of the Kalkars, and therefore an enemy of the Kalkars. But this other is from Lath. You will not permit us to go in peace, then, I demanded. He laughed sneeringly. Nor in any other way, he said. I had been standing in the aisle with my hand upon one of the chairs near the rostrum, and now I turned to Naila, who was standing close beside me. Come, I said to her, follow me. Stay close behind me. Several of the Kalkars were coming down the main aisle toward us, and as I turned toward them from speaking to Naila, I raised the chair which my hand had been resting upon, and swinging it quickly around my head, hurled it full in the face of the leader. As he went down, Naila and I ran forward, gaining a little toward the opening of the tunnel, and then, without pausing, I hurled another chair, and a third and a fourth, in rapid succession. The Kalkars tried to bring us down with their lances, but they were so busy dodging chairs that they could not cast their weapons accurately and even those few which might otherwise have struck us were warded off by my rather remarkable engines of defence. There had been four call-cars advancing toward us down the centre aisle. The balance of the party had divided, half of it circling the cave to the left and the other half to the right, with the evident intention of coming up the centre aisle from behind us. This manoeuvre had started just before I commenced hurling chairs at the four directly in front of us, and now, when those who had intended to take us from the rear discovered that we were likely to make our way through to the tunnel's entrance, some of them sprang toward us along the passageways between the chairs, which necessitated my turning and devoting a moment's attention to them. One huge fellow was in the lead, coming across the backs of the chairs, leaping from seat to seat, and being the closest to me, he was naturally my first target. The chairs were rather heavy, and the one that I let drive at him caught him full in the chest with an impact that brought a howl from him and toppled him over across the backs of the chairs behind him, where he hung limp and motionless. Then I turned my attention again to those before us, all of whom had fallen before my massive ammunition. Three of them lay still, but one of them had scrambled to his feet and was in the very act of casting his lance as I looked. I stopped the weapon with a chair, and as the fellow went down, I caught a glimpse of Naila from the corners of my eyes as she snatched the lance from the first cow-car who had fallen and hurled it at someone behind me. I heard a scream of rage and pain, and then I turned in time to see another of the cow-cars fall almost at my feet, the lance embedded in his heart. The way before us was temporarily open, while the cow-cars behind us had paused, momentarily at least, in evident consternation at the havoc I wrought with these unseemly weapons against which they had no defence. 
Get two knives and two lances from those who have fallen, I cried to Naila, while I hold these others back. She did as I bade, and slowly we backed toward the mouth of the tunnel. My chairs had accounted for half our enemies when at last we stood in the opening, each armed with a lance and a knife. Now run, Naila, as you never ran before, I whispered to my companion. I can hold them off until you have reached the mouth of the tunnel and clambered to the rim of the crater. If I am lucky, I will follow you. I will not leave you, Julian, she replied. We will go together, or not at all. But you must, Naila, I insisted. It is for you that I have been fighting them. What difference can it make in my fate where I am, when in Vana? All here are my enemies. She laid her hand gently upon my arm. I will not leave you, Julian, she repeated, and that is final. The Galkars within the room were now advancing toward us menacingly. Halt! I cried to them. You see what fate your companions have met because you would not let us go in peace. That is all we ask. I am armed now, and it will be death to any who follow us. They paused, and I saw them whispering together as Naila and I backed along the corridor, a turn in which soon shut them from our view. Then we wheeled and ran like deer along the winding passageway. I did not feel very safe from capture at any time, but at least I breathed a sigh of relief after we had passed the chamber from which the Kalkars had run us into the cul-de-sac, and we had seen no sign of any other of their kind. We heard no sound of pursuit, but that in itself meant nothing since the Kalkars are shod with soft leather sandals, the material for which, like all their other leather trappings, is made of the skins of Vagas and of the prisoners and lay. As we came to the pile of hooked poles, which marked the last turn before the entrance of the tunnel, I breathed an inward sigh of relief. Stooping, I gathered them all in my arms, and then we ran on to the opening into the crater, where I cast all but one of the poles into the abyss. That which I retained, I hooked over the lip of the crater, and then, turning to Naila, I bade her ascend. You should have saved two of the poles, she said, and then we could have ascended together. But I will make haste, and you can follow me immediately, for we do not know but that they are pursuing us. I cannot imagine that they will let us escape thus easily. Even as she spoke, I heard the soft patter of sandal-shod feet up the corridor. Make haste, Naila, I cried. They come. Climbing a pole is slow work at best, but when one is suspended over the brink of a bottomless chasm, and is none too sure of the security of the hook that is holding the pole above, one must needs move cautiously. Yet even so, Naila scrambled upward so rapidly as to fill me with apprehension for her safety. Nor were my fears entirely groundless, for, standing in the mouth of the tunnel, where I could keep one eye upon Naila and the other toward the turn around which my pursuers would presently come in view, I saw the girl's hands grasped the rim of the crater at the very instant that the hook came loose and the pole dropped past me into the abyss. I might have caught it as it fell, but my whole mind was fixed upon Naila and her grave danger. Would she be able to draw herself upward or would she fall? I saw her straining frantically to raise her body above the edge of the volcano, and then from up the corridor behind me came an exultant cry, and I turned to face a brawny Kalkar who was racing toward me. 
End of chapter 9. Recording by Thomas Copeland.